Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode of Declassified contains discussions of sexual assault, child abuse, and facing abusers. Listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one needs support, the National Sexual Assault Hotline provides 24-7 service at 800-656-4673 or at online.rainn.org. Find more resources online at rain.org slash resources. That's rain, R-A-I-N-N, dot org slash resources. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Naveed Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this, central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Katie Wee is an actress. Now, you might have seen her on TV shows like Modern Family, New Girl, and General Hospital. What you might not know is she's also an accomplished dancer, having trained at elite ballet institutions all over the world. But today we're here to talk about something else. You see, Katie's also a survivor of routine sexual abuse when she was a child by her ballet teacher. And like many victims, she's buried that abuse, blaming herself for a long time. Five years ago, Katie reported her abuser to law enforcement. What followed was a long, difficult road, navigating a criminal justice system and her own trauma, but also helping take down her abuser. Now, this is the part that I can't help but gush and say that Katie is a genuine badass. And I say this as anyone in the intelligence world will tell you, it's really hard to participate in stings. And as Katie tells it, it's even harder to do that with your childhood abuser across the table from you and a recording device in your purse. But that's exactly what Katie did. You know, I've done a lot of things. And the thing that I found, frankly, total badassery here was the fact that you, you know, amongst many things, you also chose to essentially do something that I would call kind of going undercover. And I think that that takes a certain type of person. And it's it's a fascinating story. It takes guts, like real guts to do what you did. Um, and I want to get into that. But I think the place to start here is perhaps you could explain how you actually, you know, got with the police, how that process started, how it started with, you know, your therapist and the fact that she was a, a court mandated reporter. Maybe that's a good place to start. So why don't we start right there? Could you tell us in your own words sort of how this tale began? Absolutely. Um, so like a lot of people, I repressed what happened to me my trauma and pushed it way down and just kept going on with life and went to college and got married and tried to just move on without really ever acknowledging it. And eventually when I was about 27, I felt like I had to acknowledge it. It was just coming up for me way too much. I was having um, flashbacks that were really difficult and I started to go to therapy and I had my first two sessions in therapy and thought, okay, I'm going to have like five sessions and then be able to be done with this. <laughs> um, but when I started talking about my trauma, so much stuff came up. And when I got to a good place, dealing with it, a stable place, my therapist said, as a court mandated reporter, I have to report 
this man. He's still working with children. And I Googled his name and I saw that he was still working with children. He had tons of pictures of him with his arms around lots of little girls. And it just scared me. And she said that she was going to report him. But if I wanted to be part of the process, she would recommend that um, because I had more of the information. I thought about it for a little while. um, And eventually I decided to do it. I was terrified because nobody knew in my life. My parents didn't know. My brothers didn't know. My friends didn't know. Um, But I felt like I couldn't just sit back and potentially let him keep abusing little girls without doing anything about it. How could I, how could I live with myself? So I agreed to do the reporting with her. We had to call the, we called the DCFS first, Department of Child and Family Services. They said, we can't take your claim because you're not a minor anymore. Call the police station where he works. Rushed us off the phone. We called the police station where he works. They said, oh, it didn't happen in this district. You have to call the police station where it happened. Yeah, we called the third police station. They finally take the claim. They rush me for all the details. They need every aspect of my information, my address, my name, everything. Terrifying for someone who's been trying to live with a big secret. Um, A few weeks later, nothing has happened. My therapist calls the the police department where he works and says, why are we mandated to report if you don't do anything? Nothing has happened. They call the police department where it happened, put a little pressure on them. Then they call me. I'm interviewed by the police on the phone. A few weeks later, they come to an in-person interview in Los Angeles. Um, that was that was really difficult. Any survivor can tell you that retelling their story with detail is incredibly difficult and traumatizing. And I told them the whole story it took three hours. They said, we believe you, but there's not enough evidence for us to go arrest him. And I said, I don't want him to be arrested. I, I'm, I'm just trying to tip you off. I'm trying to say, hey, there's a pedophile that works there. Go get him or go look into him. Go make sure it's not still happening and let me move on with my life. And they said, it's not, that's not the way it works. We can't just go look into someone. We can arrest him. And then likely more victims will come forward. But we can't just go look into him. We need more evidence. Um, would you be willing to secure a confession from him I asked how what do you mean they said um you could text him and he might say you could you could ask for an apology over text and he might apologize or you could call him on the phone and do the same or you could meet him in person so of course I wanted to do none of the above I even just doing this was already way out of my comfort zone um thought it for a while and finally decided I would text him they um, said, you know, if you can just say anything about what happened, like, why did you feel it was okay to have sex with me? I was a child. And he said, sorry, there we go. You're good. So I started a conversation on text. He's like, I can't believe I'm hearing from you. It's so good to hear from you. How are you? I respond with a couple of pleasantries. And then eventually I said, I want to talk about what happened when I was a kid and he goes dark, doesn't say anything. So I tell the police that and they say, okay, well, thank you for doing that. Would you be willing to meet him in person? And um, I was terrified. I um, did not want to be back in his presence and had really tried to just push that chapter of my life really far down. So to bring it back up was horrifying but at this point I'd started this process that was now months in the making of trying to do what I set out to do which was make sure that other little girls were not getting sexually abused with my potential knowing and potential enabling at that point to have that information and do nothing with it. Can, can I ask you just a, a point of clarification so you know <clears throat> it, it's a riveting story and I think that as you describe it there are many times where you know, I don't think anyone f- would fault you for deciding, um, you know, not to go forward uh, with a particular course of action. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of people who, unfortunately, when they're in this position, and I think it's absolutely their right, and I d- defend their choice to do so, you know, they, they may not want to proceed legal action because exactly as you said, it, re- it requires in some cases seeing your, you know, the person who assaulted you and recounting 
your tail to strangers. It's a very difficult thing for a lot of reasons. You know, when I was in the military, there's a, I unfortunately did have to investigate a sexual assault. And, you know, there's there's this thing where there's different like it's a little different than the, the civilian world. But victims have a right to, you know, not go forward if they choose not to. And, and again, there's no there's that's a very individual choice. So but I, I want to ask for you. I mean, this sounds so it, I mean, it's so invasive. It's so um, the opportunity to be re-victimized is so great. You know, why is you're going through this? Why did you keep and, and I don't say this because I think it was wrong, but really, what was your motivation to keep going? Why, you know, at any point you could have just said, I, you know, enough, there's other people, let someone else carry this torch. I don't want to be involved in this. What, what made you really push forward with this? Hmm. My niece was born um, that same year, <laughs> um, the first like grandchild in my family. And I just felt this immediate, like, oh, I love this little baby feeling like a total connection with this little baby. And um, I think it made me feel like I wasn't a child anymore because here was a child and I was 27 holding her. And for so long, I felt like a child. I felt like a child protecting my secret, protecting myself. And like, I had every right to do that because when that happens to you when you're 12 years old, you go through the rest of your life in some ways taking care of yourself because your parents can't help you. Um, other people can't help you. I didn't have a therapist that I was talking to. I wouldn't have told her if I did. Um, so you kind of take responsibility for yourself and you're like, whatever I have to do to get myself through my life, I'm going to do it because that's my right. And I'm just trying to get through this. And then I got to this sort of plateau of like, oh, I think I'm okay. I am doing well in my career. I have done a lot of the things on the checklist of life that I wanted to do. Um, and here I am holding this little baby and I feel this responsibility to protect this little baby, not myself. And I think that feeling drove me forward because I thought about all those little girls in tights and leotards. Some of them look like they're eight years old. They're much closer in age to my little niece than to me. I'm not one of them anymore. And I felt this sort of adult responsibility to do something about something that potentially only I could do something about because I didn't know if there were other victims. I didn't know if he would ever get stopped. And just, I mean, was there any accusations that he was continuing this pattern of abuse? I mean, I know other victims came forward, but was he still doing this when he was, when you, you know, reached out to him? Do you have any evidence? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah. So I had this weird hunch that he was, and I had this weird intuition that he was, and it turns out he was up until the night before he was arrested. Oh my God. So that's a 20 year track record. Yeah. And uh, I mean, people who do other this decide to stop, right? Like it's not right. Yeah. It's terrible. It's a, it's a sickness. And I think that abusers get sort of this high off of getting away with it over right. and over and over again. And um, another victim came forward shortly after he was arrested and they asked her, why did you come forward? And she said, I didn't want people to think she was lying. Yeah. And I appreciated that because that's a huge thing to do to come forward and to come out to the world that this happened to you. It's not, it's not easy. And to do that on behalf of another survivor, another um, sexual assault victim, it, it meant a lot to me. And then since then more allegations have come forward um, at his sentencing four women read victim impact statements. Wow. You know, it, there's another part of your story as you were counting it. If you're in the intelligence community, if you're a case officer, part of what you do, Katie, is you, you know, you work with sources and, and operatives and you're oftentimes trying to get them to do things that are incredibly dangerous and you're not doing it, but you have to motivate them. And so understanding what motivates them is incredibly important. And it's, you know, there's often this time this people think there's like, you know, you're, there's an informant and informants are, are people who are like, in many cases, like working off a criminal you know, like they're, it's either they're going to turn state evidence or they're going to go to jail. That's not what we're talking about here. You were someone who willingly, um, when law enforcement asked you again, you decided to do this to kind of talk to him. And again, I understand there's one thing to testify and, and, you know, being a participant in the criminal prosecution, but you went really one step ahead. And that must have been, I mean, there must have been a range of emotions, not to mention fear to some degree. Can you, two questions for that. One is, 
how do the police sort of treat you with that? And how do they prepare you? And, you know, what, how did you sort of disconnect yourself to a degree? I mean, this must've been difficult for you. And I mean, seeing this guy, you hadn't seen him in, in decades at this point. Um, and now you're not seeing him in a courtroom. You're seeing him in presumably in, you know, a cafe or, you know, where there's level of danger involved. That talk, talk to me about that. That's just, I mean, it's just, again, for me, I look at this as someone who practiced, you know, in the, the, not to what you did, but to me, that's just total badass. I mean, it takes a level. It's again, it's one thing to be involved in a prosecution, another thing to actively go and try to assist an investigation with this. So can you talk to me a little bit about that, what you were feeling, what you thought, what your motivation was to do that? Yeah, the police were very um, supportive and sensitive. They understood that this was a really difficult thing that I was doing. They picked me up from the airport in an undercover police car, something that I've never experienced before. I was like, this is weird. Um, and on the way there, they told me, you know, we're going to have a recording device for you um, set up in your purse. You're going to have to put the purse in between the two of you so it can record both audio. Um, you're going to walk into the cafe. The baristas will take your order. They know what's happening. There's undercover police in the cafe. You're going to go sit at the bar in the corner of the cafe. There's two stools left open. There's undercover police on both sides of them. Um, and you just have to get him to apologize. Simple as that. And I thought, okay, these are sort of basic instructions. <laughs> like you said, you have to understand what motivates people. You have to understand how you could possibly get someone like this to apologize. Pedophiles, sexual abusers are often not very high on the empathy scale. And the way you generally get someone to apologize is by making them feel bad um, or showing them that you feel sad and then they will apologize. And I had to think about this, I guess, from an actor perspective, because as an actress, whenever I'm doing a scene, you have to think about why your character is even saying the things they're saying. And that helps the other person respond. And if you're just doing it, like just saying the words, you're not going to get the right thing out of them. So I couldn't just say, I need you to apologize for abusing me when I was a kid. I thought about it when we were driving and a little bit before that on the plane and, and just realized, okay, game plan this. How's this going to go down? He stopped texting you when he realized that you wanted to talk about that. So he probably knows this meeting, which I had texted him and said, I'm going to be in town for some family things over these dates. I'd really like to see you. I can be on your schedule. I can meet you where it works for you. Let me know what your availability is this date or this date. So I think he felt a little bit like we're talking about this um, because my last text messages had been of that nature. So he said, great, I'm excited to see you. This date works for me. Can you do this Starbucks near where I work? And I said, sure. So that's what, how we got to the plan. But I, real, I knew he knew I was um, going to talk about that. So I thought about it from his perspective and I thought he probably thinks I want something um, because I'm pressing the issue and he's going to be wondering what I want. And um, he might be thinking I'm going to try to press charges or I'm going to try to tell his current ballet community what happened, or I'm going to try to ruin him or go online and talk about it. The Me Too movement was very much, you know, um, in bloom. And I think any man who is a sexual abuser at that time was probably thinking, I hope I don't get called out. So I think his ears were up. And um, I thought, okay, if worst case scenario for him is he thinks I'm going to try to accuse him in court or something, best case scenario for him is that I just want to have a heart to heart at this Starbucks. I just want to have a conversation between you and I for my own closure. I need this for myself. And I mean, if I can really. Mm -hmm. Reading your transcript, it's very clear that like, you know, just like with all these guys, I imagine huge amount of ego. Right. So, you know, uh, so, I mean, you clearly, I mean, a masterful stroke here. I mean, literally this is, again, I, I know the subject nature is, is difficult, but like reading this and how you moved upon it, it is like textbook of honestly, like work. Very impressive how you worked them. I mean, everything you're saying, you're 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 pre-gaming how you kind of plan this out. I, I think, like, 
I could go to Quantico and teach this to young agents about exactly how you play this out. That's how well like orchestrated it was. Honestly, I mean, you're you're talking about all the things about you're trying to figure out what makes him tick and what's the incentive. You knew that he probably had a sense that there was something you were going to do and his arrogance couldn't keep him from not knowing. Right. Like he wanted to hear what you had to say. He wanted to see that. And I think you completely like let him down a path that I don't. I don't think when he sat down with you, Katie, I don't think he had any sense that you were looking to record him with, you know, undercover police sitting around. Right. There's no he had he probably thought he was in total control, I'm guessing. Is that sort of how he was playing? And he, you know, probably looked at you as that 12 year old kid again. Um, did you get any sense that there was any any sense of remorse on his part at all? No. Yeah. No. Not it a was, bit, right? Absolutely. I understood from therapy that he was a narcissist a textbook narcissist only cares about saving his own skin doesn't think about the way his actions affect other people really into himself and his own story and that's what happened as soon as I walked in he looked me like from toes to face and just said Katie you look unbelievable it was disgusting I I thought for a second oh does he think I'm here to like hit on him that's I think he did in that moment until and then we sat down and he started launching directly into his own, his himself and talking about his life and peppering in so much of how things were so bad for him. And for a moment I thought, oh, I feel so bad for this guy. I don't want to nail him. I don't want to, you know, put him in jail. And then I listened to him talk and talk and talk. And my brain went, oh, wait, this is manipulation. This is, he's consciously. Completely saying all these things so you feel bad for him because he's aware that you have a little bit of a trump card on him here because this appears to be a time where rapists are held accountable and as a child rapist he's sitting there going oh shit i hope she doesn't hold me accountable and i realized in that manipulation i was like wow this is just the kind of stuff that your child brain fell for because you were a child but your adult brain is not falling for this and then he started talking about the woman who came forward the second victim who came forward to support me said some disparaging things about her and her ballet, her dancing. And as a dancer, I've watched many of her videos on YouTube and she is exceptional. She is like once in a generation, world-class, incredible, has won some of the biggest competitions dancers can win. And then at that point, I just went, Oh no, you don't get to shit all over all these young girls who you were paid to help build up, to help train. And instead you abuse them. And now years later talking to me, who doesn't even know this person, you're talking badly about her. And my, my female instincts just lit up of like, "Mm -mm. you don't get to keep doing this. And I'm not going to participate in nodding my head and saying, yeah, I'm sure that's true about some woman who I respect. And, um, she, you know, hadn't even come forward yet. This was before she'd come forward because before he was arrested. But I knew who she was um, because they'd been in a documentary together about ballet. Um, but in terms of the feeling bad, no. It was really interesting because something pedophiles do is they try to make the child feel like they're equally complicit in a secret relationship. Right. And both of them have skin in this game. So it's on both of you to keep this secret and children don't know better. Um, I didn't, I kept the secret. I felt like, Oh, this is a big honor to keep this secret. This thing that's happening to me is confusing and horrible and, and makes me feel bad in a lot of different ways, but this must be what being an adult is. I need to keep this secret too, because I've done some bad things too. This is, this is my bad that I've let this happen. And as an adult, I learned none of that was your fault. You have no responsibility as a child to protect yourself. Adults have a responsibility to protect you and to not cross that line and to not be inappropriate in that way. And um, something he said to me when he was apologizing was um, there was a big attraction, you know, and he kind of gestured between us with his hand, like you to me and me to you as if that was his justification. Like the subtext was, you were in on this too. And I just thought how interesting another manipulation tactic and no remorse. 
And when he did apologize, it felt very much just how do I save myself? How do, how do I say what I need to say to placate you so that you don't care about this anymore? Um, and at one point he said, it wasn't special. And at that point, my brain went, oh, you're definitely still doing this. Like, oh, I just, I just abused you for four years when you were 12. till you were 16. It wasn't special. It was just what happened is basically what he said. And I, I at that point, was horrified. And um, while, he's telling, sure. while he's telling us, it was, and I'm sorry, I, I have to go back to one detail that I didn't quite pick up on. You said the baristas were in on this, that like, I know that. So, look, I had plenty of clandestine meetings in restaurants and, you know, we didn't we didn't tell anyone what was going on. I'm just can you set the stage? I mean, were people because, you know, it, it always struck me that I'd have these conversations in these restaurants. And, and granted, we're talking about national security in these restaurants. But like I'm sitting here across from a Russian spy and, and I'm just I'd often like look around and I'd be like, you know, it's so weird that this is like normal life. It Was this happening? And it was just a normal you know, coffee place and no one had, you know, any idea. I mean, did they, did it look like for all intents and purposes, like just a normal day in, in this coffee place? It did. It really did look like a normal day in this coffee place. And I w- felt completely dissociated from my body this whole time, which reminded me of the first acting job I ever booked. <laughs> it was in front of a live audience and I had to come out and do some stuff. And I was like, not present. I was not right. there, but I was doing the things and saying the lines and it all worked yeah. out fine. And it reminded me of that. I was like, I can't feel my feet. I can't feel my hands. I don't know where I am. What is going on? I got dropped off at the Starbucks after being patted down in front of Panda Express. Like they think I might have a gun. Of course I don't have a gun. Like <laughs> I was, the whole day was beyond anything that it I is, ever thought would happen. Surreal, right? It's surreal. I mean, I, I, so I'm trying to, con- I hope people listening to this can understand how intense this is. It's so intense that you really like, you become a different person, right? You're playing, you're Katie, but you're playing a character that's Katie, right? Like you're not yourself. You mm-hmm. totally disassociate. I mean, and if you think about it too much, you know, you're no good because it's scary, right? You won't go forward. It's, mm-hmm. did, did you, was there that moment like when you finished talking to him? For, oh, first of all, did you have a moment when you were talking to him, when you had this aha, like we got him, we got, I, you know, I w- my mission was to go get him to say this. I got him to say this. We got it. It's over. I'm now I'm going to get at, like, did you have that internal sense or that moment that, that hit you that you were able to get a confession from him? Yeah. The first time he said, I'm so sorry, I'll kill myself, I'll mm. kiss your feet. I oh, thought, gross. okay, got it. We got, yeah, gross. I'm like, absolutely don't do any of those things. Um, but I did feel the feeling of like, okay, got it. And at that point, I sort of felt like the rest of this is for me. What do you want to say to this guy? Because once he's arrested, you're never going to see him again, which ended up not being true. I didn't realize I'd have to fully participate in the criminal justice system and go to court and look. But I, in my mind, I thought this is the first time as a free person that you can just say what you want to say to him. Right. And it strangely was cathartic and important because I think a lot of people still imagine their abuser as they were when you're a 12 year old and he's a 38 year old and he has power over you and you respect his opinion and you want his approval at this point, I was, you know, maybe 30 and he was in his fifties and I had no respect for him. I thought, what a sick person, how horrible for your child self that you got tangled up with this person. How sad for you that you ever cared about what he thought of you. And now I'm going to tell you how your effect, how your actions have affected my life. And you're going to listen. And I thought that would be more validating than it was. It was important to say it out loud for right. me and in his presence. But of course, it it's like it was hitting a wall. No, he's he not wasn't absorbing it. any of no. it. Yeah. No, narcissism, he said. Completely. But for me, it felt important to say. It felt important to say, this is how you affected the rest of my life. And just because you felt like it, just because you wanted to, that wasn't okay. And um, I was glad I got to say that person to person before it became a courtroom situation. And did you, did you, when this was over, did you walk out and just 
I mean, it's got to have been a, I mean, when I would do this stuff, there's a huge process to come down. I mean, the adrenaline, you realize you're, again, this is a very intense, like what happened when you walked out of there? How did you kind of come down? How did it start to process everything? I probably could have benefited from some of the training of how to come down from that, like, yeah, that you it. knew. They don't tell you that part. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was acted like a complete, I don't, I don't, it, it was like, I lost my mind after they, yeah. you know, he eventually said, he looked at his watch and I said, do you have to go? He said, I have to go, I have to go teach a class, which reminded me why I was doing this. I said, okay, great. You're going to go back to little girls after you just admitted to what you did to me. And then he left, he hugged me and said, you know, my life is not so good either. Um, my mom died and um, I have some health problems and then left. And I just thought like one last little dose of manipulation. Wow. Um, and then I went to I, the police kind of like rushed towards me once he was gone. And I said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom. And I, when I came back out, they said, good job. Really good job. You did a great job. How are, are you okay? You did a great job. And I was just like, it was like my ears were ringing and I was just seeing tunnel vision. And I kind of felt like, like that moment in a movie before a breakdown or a meltdown, just like me. And um, then I just said, I need to be alone. And I walked away from them and gave them back all the recording devices, found this like alley that nobody could see me in and just sobbed, just like put my hands on my knees and just sobbed. <sighs> And I think that was just, yeah, all of the emotion of the past, um, however many years it had been coming out. And then the emotions of the day, so much tension that I was holding under the surface, trying not to let out, um, letting all the masks kind of come down. And then um, after I was done crying, the police very respectfully like waited, came back and they said, do you want anything to eat? And I was like, yes, just primal survival mode. Um, just told them I was going to go into that sushi restaurant and eat. And I just went and sat at the sushi bar and ate a ton of food. And then I went to pay for it. And the waitress was like, they already got it. And um, like the police officers were like, we got it. <laughs> like, okay. Like I, I'm sure they'd never seen me. I don't think they'd had it. I don't know actually, but I got the impression they haven't done a ton of operations like this before. They yeah. were probably a little bit like, well, whatever she needs. I don't know. Seems like that's a lot of sushi, but um, <laughs> yeah. And then, sushi at least is that? It, it was. It was okay. <laughs> uh, a little too much sauce. Uh, and then, <laughs> then they dropped me back off at the airport, and I flew back. You, you flew out right after that. You didn't even get a chance to decompress. Yeah, I flew out right after. I mean, I was in the Bay Area where I'm from and where my parents live. And they still didn't know about any of this. And I didn't want to see anyone I knew. And I had no other reason to be up there. And I was completely emotionally wrecked. I had like mascara down to my chin. And I was walking through security like an absolute zombie. Um, Yeah, that was my coming down. It wasn't pretty. And it took a few months really to, to level out. Yeah. I mean, again, like just listening to this, I know it for you, it's, but it, like, there's, there are things that you are saying that are so within like the conventional spy world. Like we talk about manipulation, right? So the CIA talks about manipulation. Manipulation is kind of a funny thing, right? So I have two kids, you know, they'll manipulate me, try to manipulate all the time to stay up, right? They're to have cookies or, you know, play more, whatever they're going to play. That's not bad manipulation, right? Manipulation with it's, the intent and the motivation. There are some people like this guy who clearly thrive on, on manipulating people, but their motivation is obviously like it's in his case, it's evil. Um, But these, what you're saying, Katie, it's like, I don't know if you realize it. It is so like, I don't want to say conventional, but it is so textbook in terms of like working undercover and doing these, all the things you're saying. And it's, it, you know, to me, listening to this, Again, it just I have a tremendous amount of respect for you because I know how difficult these things are, how difficult it is to kind of prepare yourself, do it, be in the moment, like think in a combative mental. It's like it's mental combat. And then to have this adrenaline, you come back, and you come down. And then I imagine the other big thing is you meet with this guy and nothing happens for a while. Right. Like it's not they they threw handcuffs on him as he's walking out. Right. Like there's now there's this whole court case. So you know, you do this really intense thing. And how did you kind of keep yourself sane waiting? I mean, I, the court case, a whole other, you know, ball of, you know, whatever, but 
how did you prepare? How did you keep yourself, you know, going with this? I mean, it sounds because you're going like a hundred and then you're down to five. How do you, how do you balance that? Yeah. I can't say super well. I mean, it's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> like To be honest, um, the, the six months, nine months, year after this meeting, the next couple of years were just sort of like a lot of scenes from a horror movie mixed in with yeah. normal life. Cause the weird thing is that normal life goes on. Yeah. Um, so people still get married. Bachelorette parties still happen. Um, you still have auditions, you book jobs, you go work on set and you talk about normal things with people. Sure. Uh, throw your mom a birthday party, things like that, just normal things. So it felt kind of like my private life, my private in- internal space was being, um, was going through some really hard times. My body was still moving through all of the normal processes because no one in my life knew what was happening. So going to work, doing all the things, showing up for people, showing up for things I'd already agreed to do. And um, I stayed in therapy. That was really crucial I was going at least once a week and just having someone who I could download with everything that was going on in my life and that was really important for me at that time and um I think I, I think that was maybe one of the strangest times in my life because I felt like the difference between what was going on in my life and how my life looked was gigantic and um one of my friends who knew some of what was going on said to me something like I'd posted something on Instagram about how sometimes life is full of duality and things can be really good and really bad at the same time. And someone we knew had said, I don't know what's so bad about Katie's life. Like what's she talking about? What's, what's so hard for her. And that kind of feeling was hard for me because I feel like in general, people think of my life at least before all this came out, it's like, she's got, no, she's got nothing to complain about. Yeah. And not that I wanted to complain about this, but I did feel deeply uh, disturbed by sure. my whole experience with that. And um, knowing that the wheels were sort of in motion for that, I assumed eventually he was going to get arrested. I knew there would be more of a road ahead of us. Um, but I was trying to just stay in the present and just try to get through one day at a time. Really. Did you ever have that moment where you're like, man, I got the confession from him. Like what, what is, why isn't this over already? Did you, I mean, that must've been something that played, was it something that played common like, in your head a, a lot? I mean, is that something you were concerned about? I had mixed feelings because I really didn't want to tell my parents that this happened. And I right. had a feeling that if he was arrested, they, it might be in the newspapers and they might find out. And then I might have to have them go, oh, my God, did you see he was arrested for abusing someone? Did, did this ever happen to you? And answer that question. And I was up at night just terrified to answer yeah. that question because I just knew they would blame themselves. And um, they are such incredible parents. They gave me everything. The reason they were giving me these ballet lessons is because I was obsessed with dance from a young age, wanted to be a professional dancer more than anything. And we didn't really have teachers that were of the caliber in our area that were good enough. And so when I met him at this ballet studio, Contra Costa Ballet, he was like their premier teacher, their best teacher. He had this international dance experience. And he approached my dad after class and said she could really benefit from private lessons. So my dad built a studio and got speakers and dance floor in a bar so that I could have my dreams. Wow. So it was my worst nightmare to tell them that everything that they had put into me, everything that they'd invested for me to try to have my dreams had actually turned in this really sordid way. Um, and so I was simultaneously aware that he was going to be arrested and hoping that I could get through that time without ever telling my parents. But the police eventually called me and said, he's going to be arrested tomorrow. It's going to be over the, all over the news. Probably you might want to, talk to your parents because I know you haven't and they were as sensitive as they could be about that but what are they going to do not arrest the guy after all that um but I then did have to call my parents and that was a horrible call oh I can I can't even imagine um when he was finally arrested though and after obviously you did tell your parents was there some 
did you have some feeling of this is moving some feeling of resolve here? I mean, I know you, there's a whole other journey that happened. What did you feel when, when he was actually physically arrested? I think what I felt when he was first arrested was the first feeling that I felt of other people saying what happened to me was not okay because I didn't have enough self-worth or self-respect to want him arrested for what happened to me. I felt like, it's fine. I've got, I'm, I'm okay now. I just want to make sure he's not hurting other little girls. It's not about me. It's about them. I felt uncomfortable with the idea of pressing charges for myself. I didn't think I was worth that. I didn't think that was real. And that's something that happens with abusers. They, they degrade you. They make you feel bad about yourself so that they can abuse you. And then for some people like myself, you continue abusing yourself with those thoughts because you're used to it. You're conditioned to feeling bad about yourself. So when I saw him in handcuffs for me, because of what he did to me and these brave police officers had gone and done this for me, I felt this huge sense of like, I matter. Yeah. What happened to me matters. But of course the journey didn't end end there, right? I mean, you 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 get a court, you have to testify and I know yeah. eventually he pled guilty, but um, again, at any point, Katie, you could have taken that off ramp. No one would have. You're not not compelled, not required to do this. I mean, you really chose to follow through to its its uh, conclusion, and I, I'm sure it was a heavy burden on you. Um, did there come a point through this process, though, when you know one of the things that sort of surprised me, and I guess it shouldn't have surprised me, is that he still had supporters throughout this. And, um, you know, and defenders and people and in fact, people whose children, I mean, there was one, I think a police officer whose you know, daughter was one of his, in, uh, you know, students and had moved. And but why do people still defend this man? What do you think is behind that reasoning? I mean, is it just because they don't want to admit that perhaps they may, you know, they can't wrap their mind ahead that they might have been taken in by someone, you know, essentially a confidence man to some degree? What is it like? Why? Why do they defend this person? That's such a good question. I've spent so much time thinking about this because yes, there were so many supporters of his and defenders. And I found that to be so disgusting. And I think it's two things. One, what you just touched on that. Okay. If he is an abuser, then I have made all these wrong choices in putting my child in his care. I can't face the fact that I might've made some wrong choices or that I might not I might've put my child in danger. So instead it's easier to say that person's just looking for attention. That person's just, you know, after all these years, why would you come forward after all these years? I mean, yeah. Ask yourself that. Why would you for me? Because it happened because I'm trying to protect your daughter. And for them, it's like, "Mm, that's fishy. Uh, And number two, I think that we have a culture that often reflexively disbelieves women that come forward. And I should extend that really to survivors in general, because it's not just women, it's men too. And I think that that's very harmful to our society because here at this point, the world knows he really did it. He confessed, he pled guilty, he abused myself and other women. And I'm sure there's so many more, some that might still come forward and charges can be added to his sentence if they do. And so many people supported him along the way. The people that he taught for at Westlake School of Ballet, the owners of that studio testified on his behalf in the yes. trial as character witnesses. Yeah. Said great things about him. He's a great guy. We would have him back if we could. Um, his ex-girlfriend, when he, who he was dating when um, he was teaching me, came and testified on his behalf as well. All these people spoke out and said, she must be jealous of his success. And I thought that's hilarious because I've left the dance world over 10 years ago. I don't care at all about my dance career anymore. I gave that up a long time ago and he's not successful. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Uh, where are we sitting? Like you, anyone can say anyone is renowned or this or that, but the way I see it is he's teaching in a shopping center close to a Starbucks, a bunch of little kids. And he's just told me over this whole meeting about how his life is so trash, you know, made so little of himself. That's what he told me. So I'm a little confused here about how I'm coming for his success. And um, 
I think that when we reflexively disbelieve women, we create a narrative that people do this for attention. Yeah. That there's some upside. And I will tell you, I have not seen $1 from this whole thing. And I don't intend to. I don't intend to. This criminal thing, you know, there's something called restitution where a defendant has to pay back a victim for all their therapy bills. I'm never even going to see that. I lost a lot of my life to this process. A lot of my uh, mental health and wellness during that time. My life was really difficult in all of those years. And it wasn't easy. And I got resistance at every stage from people that were like, he didn't really do it. He's great. And as it turns out, he did do it. As a starting point, um, where do you think local even federal and uh, government should be going in terms of, look, I, 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 I don't think any of us mean to imply that someone who decides to teach ballet or do anything is, is, is by, by default a predator. But clearly, you know, as Sarah is suggesting and, and, and is, you know, that there is this, it is a draw for those that are predators. How, what, what can officials do? What can the government do to make sure that, you know, uh, this guy was doing this for a decade plus. It, it's it blows the mind to think that no one no one detected this, that no one complained, and that you know there's no record of that. I mean, h- how can we avoid that? How can government step in to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future, specifically in dance and ballet? Specifically in dance and ballet, we need something like what Sarah is talking about, like what USA Gymnastics has. Um, or safe sport. And though these governing bodies don't always do a perfect job, we at least need to know that there's someone holding people accountable and keeping track of reports of sexual abuse. And that dancers know where to go. Because in dance, you rely on your teacher's praise, favoritism, attention, in order to get better. The people that get the most attention from the teacher get better, fastest, and have the best chance of professional careers. So that puts a ton of power in the hands of the teacher. So we need there to be another power check. So it's not just the teacher holding all the power, that there's another body that's keeping dancers safe and that they know where they can go and report something without it crashing down upon them. Because a lot of dancers do not come forward because if they do, then their teacher will ostracize them, which is what happened um, at one point when one of the victims of Victor, my abuser, did come forward. She did report to the DCFS and they did investigate him. And then he ostracized her. He kept her far away. He acted angry at her and she felt very badly. And then he continued abusing her because she dropped the claim. How would people ever even know that he was investigated? Is that even a public record? Because I'm sure it deals with the minors that, you know, is that something that even, you know, a prospective parent can even find? I'm not sure if a prospective parent could find that, but I know that once the police arrested him, they found out that this DCFS claim had been made a few years prior. And they found out there was another um, claim that had been made in 2004 or 2005, something that far back. But then when about a uh, dancer being abused by him and then the mother decided she didn't want to press charges. So they backed off, but then he was still hired many, many more times by other places. So whether this could be more public record Um, that might be possible. But then also within the criminal justice system at large, it is so hard, I can say firsthand, to put a rapist in jail. Less than 1% of rapes are ever convicted. Less than 1%. So 99% of rapists are walking freely. And what abusers do when they get away with it is they do it again and again and again and again. And we saw that with mine. And the reason why they get away with it over and over again is because victims feel they need to be quiet for many reasons. And that's okay. And I respect any victim out there who wants to be quiet about it. We feel covered in shame by ourselves, but then we also come forward and we get covered in shame by society at large. People say she just wants attention. The the defense attorney in my case said she's trying to be part of the Me Too movement. As a woman, (laughs) as a survivor, can tell you no one wants that kind of attention. You take the most humiliating, horrifying thing that ever happened to you and you have to go basically light yourself on fire in front of the world in order for that person to be held accountable so we need reporting structures that don't require you to use your name and uh, give all your information like you have in the military there's the 
the possibility in the military of reporting with or without an investigation. Yeah. That is really crucial. And if we could report with or without an investigation and be keeping track of people who have been accused multiple times, even if there's been no investigation or no holding them accountable, I think that would lead to a safer world for us where we see less abuse. You know, this is, it's funny. Um, one of my outside pursuits, I, I'm a fellow with USC Price and we, there's a thing called the uh, Lewis Registry. The Lewis Registry focuses on police officers who've been fired for cause. And the idea is, and, and what we see in a lot of cases, you know, with Victor, for example, is that people are accused um, in many cases because the victims are, are young, they don't want to testify, they take a deal. Um, and, you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily become a public, it's a public record, but you kind of have to know where to look. And they'll just go to another state and they'll go pick up exactly where they left off. And I think what you're pointing out is really this thing that we've seen in a lot of industries, which is that data doesn't follow that person. So when they go leave state, I mean, you, you can have, you know, police officers, I'm using police officers as an example, you know, the, sort of the bad apples, but you have people who get, you know, rather than get fired for cause, they quit before that happens and they keep their credentials and they'll go to a state over and they'll pick up and just pick up where they left off. Do you think in, in, in that case, something like, and I'll leave this to both, to both you, Katie and Sarah, like, is there, is besides an oversight, you know, committee, but what a registry of like tracking some of these people, you know, teachers or coaches that are fired, you know, that leave under or fired for cause. I mean, again, there's privacy issues, but is at least that a start so that other places can, you know, someone doesn't just, you know, leave under a cloud of suspicion and go one town over and pick up a job doing the exact same thing? Absolutely. That would undoubtedly help. It was shocking how much information about Victor being uh, an abuser was readily available to the police once he was arrested. And it shouldn't take that, that much. It shouldn't take someone doing everything I did to put someone like that behind bars or to even be aware of him as an abuser, because I don't think his corner, his supporters, the people that he taught most recently were even really convinced until the end. They wrote letters of support at his bail hearing um, that the like judge had to read saying what a great guy he is and how, how phenomenal he is. So they were, they were fighting for their right to keep their children in his hands for a man Until who pled guilty, who literally pled guilty, right? It's- yeah, but after after he pled not guilty, he we went through a whole trial where he said he was not guilty. Um, what, we, what, where were these trial. supporters when he eventually pled guilty? Were they still there? But at this point, have they had they quiet? Abandoned? Yeah, quiet. Just a- close a- the shop quietly, move along to their next thing where they can pretend they're right about something else. So okay, so in the list of badassery, in my my opinion. One, you went to therapy, which is always, you know, that takes a lot of guts, believe it or not, that first step. Uh, the second thing is, you know, you essentially worked, <laughs> worked to elicit a confession, which is brave as hell. And then you followed the process through to its, to, to its completion. And then lastly, you've decided to, you know, to come pub, become, go public, put your name, put your face out there. What was this decision for that last piece? I mean, that's an incredibly brave thing. And like you said, people... I think a lot of people don't want to come forward because they're afraid of uh, the shame that is associated with it. Uh, you know, the perceived shame, I should say. Um, coming out there with your name, it, what was the, th- why, why, why did you decide to, you know, again, all these steps, there's an off ramp. You don't have to do it. What made you do this? What made you want, you know, to sort of put your, become public? It goes back to what I learned in therapy. <laughs> and, um, so much of what I worked on in the beginning in therapy was that it wasn't my fault. And I've been carrying so much guilt and shame my entire life because I felt like it was my fault. Like I should have done more to stop it. I should have spoken up. Um, I shouldn't have been so nice to him before it all started. Maybe that was what happened. And living with that shame was so heavy. And it made me feel like when really good things happened to me, like I don't deserve this. And when really bad things happened to me, I was totally comfortable with it. It's like, yeah, okay. And it just attracted so much patterning into my life of like negative things. And, you know, one of my best friends said, she read a statement at my victim impact, a victim impact statement at my hearing. She said, I've known her for 10 years. and I couldn't understand how somebody so wonderful could think so little of herself. 
and meeting you and sitting through this trial and watching you, my abuser, I understand now why. And I think that is really what my abuse took from me is it, it made me feel ashamed of myself. And coming forward now and saying this happened to me and it wasn't my fault. It's the ultimate statement against the shame of I'm not ashamed. This is not my thing to be ashamed of. This is his thing to be ashamed of. And it's very empowering at this point to be able to tell my whole story. And I hope other survivors who are worried that they'll be judged, that they'll be blamed, are reading the comments on my page of people saying, you're so brave. This is never your fault. This never should have happened to you. Thank you for what you've done. Because I think there is this idea that everyone will come attack you. And yes, that happened initially. But now I feel vindicated because he's in jail. He pled guilty. And I feel that the last thing for me to conquer is the belief that any of this was my fault. I mean, shame is a, is a, is a hell of a powerful thing. Uh, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's remarkable. You know, the last thing I want to ask you, though, through all of this, you know, this was just reading again, your journey here. It, it, again, I, I can't I come back to it. it. It is incredibly brave. It isn't, it's not just brave. Like it's, it is really badass. I know how difficult this is. And, and we're talking about years of going through this. Um, what is your takeaway on like victim support in the justice system? Is it, what was your experience with that? How would you rate it? Um, can we do doing better there? We can absolutely be doing better there. The individual people, the detective who worked on the case and the DA who worked on the case were lovely people who I think very highly of. The rules that they have to uh, bow to, the rules that they have to follow, make it very difficult for a victim to move forward in the criminal justice system and be treated fairly. Um, there are incredible organizations like NCVLI, National Crime Victims Law Institute, who are doing important work to make sure that victims moving through the criminal justice system have their rights and they advocate for those rights and they know their rights and they will bring themselves in to sit down next to the victim in court. So it's not just the DA handling them. They have somebody actually looking out for their best interest as well, how this is going to affect them mentally, emotionally. Um, and I think that putting more attention and more resources and uh, more donations <laughs> into organizations like that, that are looking out for the victim who is already coming into this process victimized, clearly. There's so much support for defendants' rights you know, my abuser was not allowed to be in a jumpsuit in court. He had to be in a suit. Understandable. There's people advocating for defendants' rights all sure. the time. There's a lot of energy going in there. There is not the same support on the victim side, and we need that. Mm. I mean, I, I I never even thought of it that way. That's such an important point. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, again, I just think about how how tough this is and how brave you have to be to subject yourself to going through this entire process and there's no, there's really no reason that we can't make that, you know, can't support victims. Uh, can I change things onto a sort of a lighter, more happy tone? Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? I mean, this is, you know, thank goodness. I don't want to say this is behind you, but look, the guy's in jail, you, you know, you made it to some level of completion. I'm sure there's a lot of therapy forward going and that's great. Um, but what are you doing with your life now? You're, you're, can you tell us a little bit about where people can find you? What, what, where can we see you next? Yeah. Um, the easiest way to follow along with me, I post stuff on Instagram. It's Katie Weeb. It's my Instagram handle. I'm really focusing right now on enjoying my life. <laughs> it's, it's hard um, when you're used to getting through your life to just stop and go, okay, things are okay now. And, and I think it's an important thing to do to sort of let myself orient and enjoy. Um, I'm also writing a book. I um, want to be able to share with other survivors and anyone who's been through trauma, the things that I've learned that have helped me heal because my greatest desire has always been to live my life to the fullest, to extract as much happiness and joy and goodness out of it. And I think sometimes when we have heavy trauma on us, it's really hard to do that. And I'm so proud of the work that I've been able to do in my own healing and I'm hoping to do what I can to help survivors in the future. I'll be speaking um, as the keynote speaker for the NCVLI Voices for Justice event, um, September 28th. It's on Zoom if anybody wants to attend. Um, they're don donating to them is an incredible opportunity to help people that were in, that 
are in the situation that I was in. And that means a lot to me is to just make the path less bumpy for the next generation, because sadly, there will be more people that need this process for justice. And currently, it is so problematic. All right. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Katie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks once again to Katie Wee for joining us. There's ongoing litigation involving her abuse, but you can keep up with her and her work on Instagram at It's Katie Wee. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek. Newsweek.